0: In this practice, this way of engaging with life, we are invited to consider and to cultivate a a vision of possibility, a, a sense of what we as human beings are capable of. And when I come into the hall before speaking, I like to really take a few moments to to bow and express for myself what's a sense of profound respect and appreciation for the Buddha, a human being like ourselves, who through a life of considerable effort and challenge expressed and embodied, really a remarkable range of beautiful human qualities. And it's said that the the Buddha in the sort of the traditional stories of the Buddha or the way he's held within the, within Buddhist tradition, it was said he had the opportunity to awaken from suffering, to be liberated and free many thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of years before he actually did. And this requires some to take on board, some acceptance of the concept of rebirth and the cycle of existence, which may or may not be something we relate to. So if that's not particularly meaningful for you, you can leave this but sort of in the realm of, hmm, maybe. But nonetheless, as the story is related in the tradition, he, as as a practitioner of the Dharma, in this lifetime many many lifetimes before the one in which he awakened which we could describe as being within the the modern age if two and a half thousand years ago counts as modern but certainly the historical age that we know of and it's said in that he encountered the Buddha of that age the the Buddha of that time and was so inspired by the the many beautiful qualities that that Buddha expressed, that he committed himself to not simply awaken and find his own liberation for personal salvation, but to cultivate all the qualities of heart and mind that that Buddha of his time had cultivated, and that in fact all Buddhas have cultivated, in order to be able to serve other beings, in order to be able to teach the Dharma, in order to be able to maximize his capacity to serve the liberation of others. And as a result, he undertook to, to practice and practice, as the story goes, for thousands of lifetimes when in fact he could have chosen to be liberated in that lifetime. There's quite an immense undertaking or commitment in it. There's something in that for me, whether again, whether or not one believes the literal story, which isn't actually required. But that sense of how being inspired by what's possible for us, by what's possible for us as human beings, can give us the motivation to, to look at our life as a vehicle for the service of all that lives, rather than simply our own welfare or benefit. And this, as a framework for our spiritual aspiration, is powerful and profound beyond measure. And what I'd like to speak about this evening are the qualities that the, the Buddha cultivated and developed through his many lifetimes, which he brought, brought to full fruition in his final lifetime. And in that fruition... Came to be the self-awakened Buddha, and this is the two two of the primary qualities of the the Buddha: uh, that capacity for self-awakening, that not needing to encounter dharma teachings the way the rest of us are lesser mortals are. Uh, we really need someone to tell us how things are, or else we don't get it. And the the great uh, wonder of the the Buddha's life and practice was his discovery of this these teachings, which we've received, and for which we may perhaps feel some Gratitude and our good fortune. And the other sort of feature of, of the Buddha that, that marks him out is what was described as his capacity to teach all beings as they needed to be taught. This is very important, both because he was the perfect teacher. He was able to found a teaching and a, a, a dharma um, transmission that has sustained through thousands of years but so, so and this was the, the fruit of his many thousands of years and lifetimes of training was that he could teach each person as they needed to be taught and kind of as a side point to my main intention for the talk but as a useful one because it just occurs to me as I'm saying this that what that actually means for us also if we understand that about the Buddha is that there is no one single way that is the path for every person Otherwise, why would there be any great value in having someone who could teach each person as they needed to be taught? It's that capacity that allows the Buddha, in terms of, again, we can talk about the historical Buddha, we can talk about what that represents in terms of the full fruition of wisdom, to discover the way for each person. But that way may vary for each of us, and so we need to find within the framework of teaching and practice. What actually works? And this is often, I think, you'll have found when it comes down to the question of what should I do or should I not do in terms of interviews or practice, that the response we'll tend to give is well, what works? What works? So, the qualities that the the Buddha cultivated have been come to, or come to be known and described as the parami. Paramita in Sanskrit, parami in the Pali which is the language the Buddha's teachings were were recorded in. And there's ten qualities that the Buddha cultivated and that we also cultivate in our practice. And I'll just list them initially before just taking some time to reflect on each of them individually. The first of the qualities is generosity. And then non-harming or ethics. Patience, truthfulness, resolve, effort, loving-kindness, renunciation, equanimity, wisdom. These are the qualities that we learn to cultivate and develop through our practice that come out of the development of mindfulness and steadiness of heart and mind. So I'd like to speak about them. And the quality that's listed first is generosity often translated as dana. Well, in fact, it's not what I should say, it's dana, often translated as generosity. <laughs> dana is the the word from the Pali language, which many of you will be familiar with. This quality of sharing, of benefiting and supporting others through freely giving and offering what we have for our own, of our own. And to see that this, this quality is something very powerful, that it It's universal in its application and in the sense of everybody recognizes. You don't have to be Buddhist or even spiritual in any overt sense to recognize the power and the value of generosity, to see it as something that's quite beautiful and quite lovely. And I I find it quite a natural response of the heart. When we're not caught in fear or when we're not caught in a sense of I haven't got enough and I've got to protect or preserve me, there's a, a natural response of wanting to share, wanting to offer. I, I notice it really clearly when encountering, encountering creatures, wild animals outdoors, a sense of just wanting to have some morsel of food to give them, and how much joy there is in that sharing. And it used to be the case that often uh, the chickadees would be, the little birds would get trained to come and eat seeds out of yogi's hands. I don't know if any of you do it these days. But um, just that sense of how much delight there is in the offering of a little food. To a creature, and of course, if it doesn't take it out of your hands, you can put it on the snow and it'll enjoy it just as much. That sense of there's something really quite lovely about that. I remember traveling in India being struck by the delight that people who had so much less than I had took in offering me some of what they had in the way of simple food or drink, and how it was actually hard for me sometimes to receive it. But actually really important to be able to because for them this was something beautiful and noble and to really allow them to give to cultivate this this quality that's so beautiful so powerful it honors our interconnectedness when we share with others and so it brings us into contact consciously and tangibly in terms of action with something that's fundamentally true but which we easily and often lose contact with or conscious contact with, our uh, interrelatedness. It expresses it quite naturally. And it also has a way of of coming back to us in sometimes ways we couldn't predict. But just to share a little story about this, there's a a spiritual community called Lama Foundation in Taos, New Mexico, that a number of people who've been connected with IMS over the years have had contact with, and it's not specifically Buddhist in orientation, but a very open and wonderful uh, spiritual practice and exploration taking place there, and about. Fifteen years ago, I think it was, they had a they had a tragic accident, and uh, well, tragic. They they had a fire that destroyed much of the premises, and no one was hurt. But after that took place, I heard this story from someone who lived there, and this person had had with a very dear friend of theirs been out shopping in some little pueblo in the, in somewhere in New Mexico and found these, but the two of them together found these two exquisitely beautiful ceramic bowls. And so they bought them and each had one. And they were just really possessions that gave them a lot of joy and a lot of love. And the woman who I heard the story about, she said that her friend, at some point after they'd had these beautiful bowls, had broken her bowl. And she was distraught, the loss of this really precious, beautiful thing. And so the friend who lived at the Lama Foundation thought, she just somehow in her heart there was a sense of, okay, I'll give her my one. And she did. This was a few weeks before Lama Foundation burnt down. And everything was lost. Everything that these people had, no one was hurt, but everything that they treasured pretty much was destroyed. And she reported her amazement and delight when not long after they had come back to the, to the grounds to t- try to salvage what they could there, her friend walked back up the hill and gave her the bowl. And she said, you know, I realize that the only reason I have this is because I gave it away. <laughs> something really profound and important in that understanding. When we give something away that the goodness of that is actually something we receive way beyond what it is we've given and so this quality of sharing of offering to Buddha encouraged as a practice and it's something that actually can bring delight and joy to the heart Very much part of our tradition here, and that sense of the way we act having an impact in our life, but carries on into relationship to the second of the the parami, non-harming. In the 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 Pali, it's sila, or ethics, virtue. It's sometimes translated, but that can have a little bit of a sort of a particular sort of feel to it that may or may not be useful when we talk about virtue, but. uh, one of the translations. Expressed for most of or many of us in the in the precepts in the sense of committing ourselves to not causing harm, to refraining from causing suffering so far as we're able to. And the the underlying principle in this treating others as we would wish ourselves to be treated. And this is a principle again found in many spiritual traditions. It's not just some sort of something in the Buddha Dharma. That sense of seeing that if we can put ourselves in other people's shoes or vice versa, then actually what we don't want to happen to us, it makes no sense to do that to anybody else. And so starting to understand the law of karma in terms of the Buddha's teaching, that in fact what we do to others is what we get back. Our actions are seeds that are planted in life which bear fruit inevitably of the same quality as that which we planted And when we act from reactivity, from self-centeredness, from aggression, or disregarding the well-being of others and our either trying to get what we want or get rid of what we don't like, when we do that, in fact, it leads to suffering for us. It causes pain. And so, not just out of caring for others, but equally out of caring for ourselves, respecting ourselves equally as others, refraining from causing harm as something to cultivate, as something beautiful, as something noble, that we can develop, that we can deepen, that we can aspire to. And again, with this, I'd like to illustrate with a story. I was told this by a a person who was a retreatant who came along to an evening talk I gave in Vermont when I lived at IMS 15 years ago. And uh, I, I gave a talk in this little sitting group. And after I spoke about the topic of karma, as it was, she said, "You know, that's really interesting because some time ago I was living with a. Now I'm not quite sure which word you mean for the one that's not intimate. Is it housemate here, or roommate? Mm-hmm. Roommate, okay. And a roommate, where I come from, means you live in t- You know, you're probably sleeping together. Um, <laughs> but a housemate and a housemate, but a roommate, you're just sharing a house, right? So you're just friends, or maybe not even." Yeah. So anyway, with this particular, well, that's relevant because with this particular housemate, roommate, sorry, roommate, um, this particular roommate, she described that she sort of fell out with her and she was starting to get a bit irritated by her. And so she thought, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And as she was packing up her things and decided to go and she told the person, the housemate, the roommate, I'm leaving. She was packing up and there was this really nice wooden clothes rack for drying clothes And she didn't know if it was her housemates, roommates, but she knew it wasn't hers. She thought maybe it was here when we moved and I can't remember but I really like it. So she took it when she left. Knowing it wasn't hers. And she said with a sort of a wry smile, she said, you know I moved in with someone else, we were living, things were going really well, I thought we were getting on fine, me and this other person. Then at some point they told me they were going to move out and when they left I took the clothes horse. <laughs> it was like, you know, it's not always quite that literal, <laughs> but it works that way. It works that way. And in the Dharma teachings, we can reflect on the fact that, in fact, or the the truth that it's our intentions and our actions that are. Are our true possessions the things that come with us is that which we've cultivated through our actions through our wholesome intentions through our expressions of kindness or or non harming and other qualities through through this way we actually this is what comes with us in life and if we're to believe the tradition the way it teaches beyond this life nothing everything gets left behind But that which we've cultivated in the heart, the qualities that we've nourished, they seem to flow through. So the next of the precepts is nikamma, renunciation, letting go. And this is one that sometimes for Westerners we can find a little bit of sort of Disinclination towards getting enthusiastic about this one, sort of renunciation. It sounds like deprivation or sort of having to do without. And doesn't that suffering? Aren't we trying to get away from suffering? And doesn't having more nice things actually reduce the suffering? And yet, it's not about deprivation, it's not about somehow forcing ourselves to do without, but seeing that because we're not in control of experience, we're constantly in a situation where we have to make do without. thing that we might wish to be there it happens all the time and learning what this quality has to offer us and what teaching it has to offer us letting go, renunciation nikama, this is actually the basis of contentment and from contentment comes peace contentment that sense of with what I have I can be okay be nice to have some other things, sure. But with what I have, I can be okay. That simple sense of letting go. I don't need it to be different than this, to be okay. And we get a sense of that as we practice, as we learn to see. It's my mind, my body, my experience. It's not always as I wish it to be. But actually, I can be okay with this. And more than just contentment, there's actually something quite delightful that arises as we steep, deepen into and start to understand this quality. So there's, a, again, a story I'd like to illustrate this with. There's a, it was a, a very well-respected and much-loved Sufi master who had a, a center where her students came to practice and to study with her. And she was much loved and respected, but she was also known for her stern discipline and her requiring her students to really step up to the mark. And she was always speaking to them about the importance of simplicity, of renunciation, of just making do with, you know, very simple, basic, you know, this would be a palace compared to the conditions they practiced in. And yet her students noticed that every Saturday on market day she'd go down to the market. They weren't allowed to. But she'd go down to the market, spend all day there, and come back with this big smile on her face. <laughs> and after a while, one of her students plucked up the courage to ask her. He said, you know, you've told us about the importance of simplicity and renunciation and that true satisfaction doesn't come from material things and possessions and all that. And we understand this is true and important, but we see that every day on Saturday, every Saturday, you go down to the market You spend all day there and you come back so bright and beaming. and We don't understand. Please explain to us. And so the the teacher, she says, you know, I go down to the market every Saturday and spend all day there because it gives me great joy to see all the things I'm happy without. (laughs) To see, to know all the things we can be happy without. It's like what a relief really. There's a lightness in that. I just the weight lifts off the heart. It's like, oh, actually I don't need all those things. And so another way I've heard this teaching express in terms of letting go is simply to accept what comes into our life and release that which departs from our life. Just that. Imagine what a difference it would make to simply accept and receive what comes in and let go of and release that which passes out and (sighs) departs. In some ways, this is the whole practice. To the degree that we can let go, to that degree we find peace. And as Ajahn Chah said, who I think Heather mentioned, he's a great teacher, he once observed, let go a little and you'll know a little peace. Let go a lot and you'll know a lot of peace. Let go completely and you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So I could stop there but uh, I won't <laughs> it's not an easy question sometimes what it means to actually let go sometimes we think that letting go means something goes away, that's not so sometimes letting go means we let things that are difficult simply be and the language of letting go when it's in relationship to something difficult is most usefully translated as actually letting it be letting it be, as it is as you are When it's something we want to keep hold of, then we need to let go, literally, let go. doesn't mean it goes away, but at some point it might. And the question that's useful with this, in terms of letting go, it's like, what are we wanting to support in our life? Because it's not always obvious. Sometimes we might think that letting go means I should let go of my wish to change my posture. I should just let go and be with the pain in my knee. Because that's actually letting go, because actually I want to not feel this discomfort. And for some of us, some of the time, that might be actually a useful practice, to just really let go and be with this discomfort. But for others of us, much more difficult and scary than changing the posture, than sorry, being with the pain, is the idea that if I change my posture, everyone else is going to notice, and they're all going to think, you know, lightweight. (laughs) and actually the more challenging practice for us might be to say oh I'm going to actually do it even if I don't need to and just see what that feels like to imagine because it is just imagining that everyone is thinking you know dismissing us which they're not but that's what we're really afraid of or in terms of I know I did this also sometimes with with when I'd find the urge to want to eat something. And I knew I didn't really need to be eating something, but it was just like entertainment or distraction. And what I found useful was to ask myself in the context of this letting go, rather than doing it as some kind of willful, forceful thing, was like, what am I feeding here? What am I feeding? Because if I'm feeding my bodily well-being with nutriment, my bodily well-being will increase. That's what happens when we feed something. But if I'm feeding my tendency for you know, my greed and my wish for pleasant sensations and distraction, then that's going to get bigger and stronger. And when I think of it like that, it's a little bit easier to say, hmm, okay, I think I won't feed that. Because <laughs> I don't want that to get any stronger. It's got enough going for it as it is. <laughs> yeah? <clears throat> so it's not about negating our well-being, renunciation. That's why it's important to understand this well. It's not somehow authority or Encouragement to negate our looking after our well-being, but to understand what the real looking after our well-being is, what that entails. And it's not easy, as I said. The next of the parami, virya, effort, energy, that way of engagement that we need to bring forth in order to, to do what this practice asks of us, which, though at one level is non-doing, is learning to just settle back and open into the truth of our life, the strength of our habits and patterns are so compelling and well-established that it actually requires considerable effort to not do all those things that we habitually do. And while we might sometimes think, oh, there's nothing to do, nothing, no effort involved in this, the truth of it is there's a lot to not do. A lot to not do. And it does require a wholehearted application of our energy to be present, to be awake, and to, to let go. To be here and to see where we take hold and start to release it. And uh, the Buddha spoke about, in terms of virya, in terms of effort, the four great efforts, which are essentially the effort to support the arising or the sustaining of that which is wholesome the first two efforts. They're supporting the arising of the wholesome or the sustaining of the wholesome. And then the second, or the third and fourth great efforts are to support the non-arising and then the fading away of. So the the non-arising of the unwholesome and when the unwholesome has arisen, supporting it to pass away that's not the same as somehow just getting rid of but understanding that for instance when difficult qualities arise for us or difficult sort of mental activity is going there seeing what supports it being able to dissolve like ah oh, not identifying so strongly with it not trying to get rid of it but just making space for it knowing clearly that just doesn't define who we are seeing different ways that allow us to let go and so these great efforts of cultivation of supporting the wholesome noticing what allows us to be present, it's wholesome and supporting that noticing what tends to generate distractedness and not supporting that so we're interested in this practice to notice what supports because everything, nothing happens by itself we don't happen by ourselves life doesn't happen by itself there's always things supporting things There's, there's conditionality that we speak of and as we start to see how that works, we can support that which is wholesome and cease to give support to that which is not serving our well being. Just is what we mean by wholesome. It's not a, a judgment or a sort of a a moralistic position of good or bad or right or wrong. It's more like what supports well being and happiness, what supports suffering and and harm. And just seeing the natural orientation in regard to that. The next of the, the parami is patience, kanti. And this was, in fact, before the Buddha had the many rules of training that ultimately developed for the monks and nuns, well over 200 that they have to follow. We just have five precepts, so you know, think of yourself as doing well here. Um, but before all of that developed, the first rule of training was essentially be patient. Be patient. Patience is the space that stands between our reactivity and our activity. Like the reaction arises and we don't actually have to follow it. Patience is the place in which we learn to give space in order for something else to come through that's not the reactivity. And sometimes it's not easy to stay with the conditions we encounter. We have to be patient with our minds. We have to begin again and again and again and again. We see that can we do that patience is all helpful in practice and one of the interesting things is that we often start with a degree of patience we feel like yeah it's okay it's not all going to happen at once even though actually culturally we're very impatient mostly we're you know we're into instant gratification we want instant enlightenment and you know we'll all happen on day 2 and you know i'll just kick back and enjoy the rest of the week sort of thing would be nice wouldn't it but it doesn't happen that way we've noticed and yet often the sense comes well i've been doing it for a while now you know shouldn't it have all happened shouldn't i've sorted this out shouldn't all the fruit of the dharma be mine by now surely after six seven days (laughs) or six seven years or you know several decades for some of us um so there's a, another instructive story, there's, there's a lot of stories in this talk, but uh, there we are, I like stories. Um, with regard to this, I think it's very instructive. His Holiness the Dalai Lama um, on occasion has uh, audiences with his students when, when he's able to. And someone who had been practicing for, for 20 years, so he wasn't technically directly a student of His Holiness, but as a practitioner in that, that tradition, um, had the opportunity for an audience with, with the Dalai Lama, and he was so excited. So, and he, and he, he came, came to his holiness and he said, Oh, I'm I so, so glad for this opportunity. Thank you. He said, I want to tell you about my practice because you know I've been practicing for 20 years. And there's all these difficult things that just keep happening. He says, Oh, there's you know, my mind and my body and the, this goes on and that goes on. And it's just, oh, I just don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. His Holiness, you know, his sort of listened. And he said, yes. And he says, yeah, it sounds like a lot of really difficult things. He says, you know, it's like that in the early years of meditation. <laughs> and it's like the first 20 years of the early years. Can you feel the sense of relaxation that invites? It's like, oh, yeah, we're still learning, huh? We're not sort of demanding ourselves to have got somewhere else. And that doesn't mean we need to set up some idea that somehow the fruit of the practice is a long way distant from where we are or a long way down the road. It's not about that. It's about that quality of openness to where we are that actually brings us very close to the immediacy and the possibility that is actually right here. That isn't about time or duration at all. But even... With that immediacy, we nonetheless have the need for patience in the face of the reality of our bodies as they age. The Buddha spoke about, you know, the, the way that the body as it ages. He talked about his body like a a cart held together by leather straps, sort of you, know, you get this sort of sort of flapping and banging and not really working that well anymore when he was heading into his eighties. And it's like, wow. Yeah, we need patience, no matter how much wisdom we have, how much realisation we have. Patience is still going to be asked of us, not least because even if we might be really wise, look at all the people around us. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> There's that great saying, you know, how does it go? Those of you who think you know everything are starting to irritate, those of us who do. <laughs> And there was the occasion when the Buddha really got irritated with his followers and told them to go away. Very interesting how that happens. Even for fully enlightened beings. <coughs> Truthfulness. Honesty. Sakya is the Pali. So next to the Parami. Quality of honesty, about being honest with ourselves. Saying it how it is. In communication with others, not needing to cover it over, or you know, finding the appropriate and right time to speak. But when we speak, being honest, and with ourselves, perhaps most importantly, being honest with ourselves, not kidding ourselves okay. about what we see. And you know, this goes two ways. The more obvious way we tend to think is not kidding ourselves about our limitations or deficiencies. And it's important that we do really own up and say, yeah, there's some parts of this being that. Haven't been developed so well or so fully. That I can see the potential for, for learning and growing more here. Being honest with ourselves about that, not kidding ourselves. Accepting it, and yet not feeling that acceptance means a life sentence, that it's always going to be this way. That sense of possibility. But being honest with that, for many of us, is actually the easier form of honesty. You know? If I was to suggest that everybody here should make a list of 10 things that, about themselves that could really do with improving, I mean, we could probably all do it quite quickly. And if I was to say, okay, now I want you to read them out in the group, most of us could actually do it without, you know, and feel like, yeah, that's okay. It's probably good for me, you know. But imagine if I said to you, okay, list 10 things about you that are really good, well-developed, beautiful, noble, and precious. Even the idea would be terrifying for some of us. And the practice, the act of writing them down would be really painful. And if I then said, okay, now read them out in the group, it would be beyond (laughs) what we could contemplate doing. Really interesting how that is, huh? Some of the honesty that we are asked to bring is to be able to be honest also about that which is beautiful, noble, and developing in us. Rather than having to think of developed as some finished position, because there's no such thing, really. But developing, what we see growing, what we see learning, in us, what's opening up that we can recognize to honor this is really important to sustain this practice and to sustain our lives. That honesty cuts both ways, and then it's really true and it's really powerful. And then the sense of aligning our life with the truth of things. This, if we wish to discover, if we wish to realize what is true. We wish to awaken to the truth of life. We need to live that as far and as fully as we can. And it's said in the story of the Buddha that although he got plenty of things wrong throughout his thousands of lifetimes of this training and development that I referred to, he said the one thing that he always kept to was truthfulness. So when he messed up, he said, whoop, I messed up. When he got it wrong, he said, whoop, I got it wrong. He didn't kid himself about that. Something very powerful in that willingness. And a to not take it so personally, to not be needing to be so defended about about the fact that again, as Heather said last night, you know, we make mistakes, we get it wrong, we start again. That's how it works. The next of the parami is equanimity, quality of balance. Upeka is the the Pali word. Upeka. It has this quality of being open, just open to experience, allowing What comes, Not having such a strong sense of preference. Just how it is. It's like sunshine. It shines. The image is given of like the sun shines on all things. It doesn't say I'll shine on this, but I won't shine on that. When the sky is clear, the sun shines on all things. And equanimity is equally that that quality that's not distant. And this is important because we sometimes think of equanimity or sometimes the language of Detachment is used as a synonym for that. And it's not really so useful, I think, because it suggests a distancing or moving away. More useful and rather beautifully expressed by one teacher, Tibetan Lama, was equanimity is to be equally near to all things. And I really love what that, the sense of what that evokes. It's like to be equally near, to be willing to be right there with all things. Not saying I'll be close to this, but I don't want to be close to that. Someone was reporting in the interview today, seeing how that there was something going on in their experience, of mental activity, while walking outside and wishing, I wish the mental activity would stop so I could enjoy how beautiful it was. And then he reported how the moment he saw the mental activity as part of what was here, and said, Oh, that's part of all of this. He wrote, Oh, actually suddenly he could include that. And suddenly he could really open to everything else. We can't actually open to part of the totality any more than we can reject part of it. If we push any piece of it away, we actually push the whole thing away because it's not divisible. And if we open to it, we open to it all. So when we open to the difficult, we're equally opening to the beautiful. This quality is not easy for us. It's something that we struggle to, to find our way into. So, it's a poem that I think speaks to just how difficult it is. Because, again, as I list these qualities, it would be possibly easy for, for parts of our mind to start thinking, hmm, well, gosh, you know, we're ticking off all the ones we don't got. yet. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five, you know. Um, we're going for a record score, and I haven't got that one, you know. But there's always these these qualities are there as seeds and they develop. And in terms of this one, there's a, there's a lovely poem that I like to share. Um, it's entitled "If." And if any of you know the poem by Rudyard Kipling, the uh, I think the Victorian English poet, sort of English South African poet it's It's a very beautiful poem about all the wonderful qualities that one could manifest in the world in order to be you know a, a mature being and it's sort of if you could you know walk amongst kings and also, and not get proud but walk amongst the poor people and not lose your virtue, all these wonderful qualities and it finishes off and if in the end you could do all this, you'll be a man, my son, sort of you know very grand well, it's not that poem but <laughs> but, but If you know that poem, and that's why I explain a little bit, you'll understand this poem, I think, more, or you can appreciate it more fully. So it's entitled, If. If you can sit quietly after difficult news. If in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm. If you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy. If you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate. If you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill. If you can always find contentment just where you are. You are probably a dog. (laughs) (laughs) So in this regard we could think of or understand development The development of equanimity is learning to embody that quality that one might notice in one's canine friends, (laughs) as well as in perhaps others. And on a more kind of serious note with regard to equanimity, it's that quality that allows us to stay steady in the face of the storm. Equanimity isn't the absence of the waves and the challenges of life. That's sometimes what we call tranquility. Another quality, a lovely quality. When things are just calm and we're even and there's nothing going on, it's like a pool with no waves in it or no ripples. It's just, ah. But equanimity is very different and somewhat more portable. Equanimity is the quality or the ability to actually be so rooted in the truth of where we are that we don't get blown over by the waves that come. And just like the, the image that I would use is like a yacht or a sailboat In the ocean which has the keel that that piece of wood or that part of the structure that is sticking deep into the water and although the waves and the wind and the current strike the boat because it's got that deep keel it doesn't get knocked over or capsized or turned around losing its direction and so the way in which as we connect with our experience with this quality of just simple conscious presence of mindful awareness that we we start to root in a way more deeply into where we are into into the thisness and the suchness of our life that rootedness we 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 actually start to not be so easily blown over by what's moving on the surface because there's a sense of being in contact with something deeper that is steady that is stable and that provides a sort of like a a holding for us that we can rest into and sometimes when things are really difficult and challenging it's useful just to notice our butt buttock, bottom on the seat not sure which word is okay here but anyway I've used them (laughs) Um, where I come from they're all fine so let's just assume that's good Um, and you know that sense of just feeling the ground beneath us and more than just the physicality of the ground but that sense of Solidity, or "Mm, yeah, and so we when we talk about coming back into that, it's like that supports us in the face of the waves that come. So the next of the qualities is aditana, resolve or determination. And I like the word Aditana. There's something about it that just has a quality that's very much in line with what the word is expressing. Aditana. I get the sense of it's sort of a, something very clear and strong and upright in that word, aditana. And it's the ability and the quality that allows us to commit and sustain in the face of challenges. That, that quality of clear intention backed up by commitment that says, yes. I will stay with this, that is of value, that is of importance, that is precious. Even in the face of the challenges that come to us, so it it allows us to stay present in the face of that which we would otherwise say, "No, I'm out of here. That's enough for me. Thank you." But there's a there's a, this this why it's this very upright quality. And in the story of the Buddha's life and particularly his awakening. There's, there's a point and a moment which in, is, is it's really the, the full fruition of this quality in his life and his journey where he comes after years of practice and struggle that hasn't borne the fruit he was seeking. He comes to sit underneath the Bodhi tree and as he sits down there, he says, taking his seat, he says, I will not move from this place. Until I have realized that which can be realized by human endeavor. He says, "I will not move from this place, though my blood run dry, though my bones turn to dust, I will not move, until I have realized that which can be realized by human endeavor." And there's something in that which, when I repeat it, that says, "I will not move." That I, I, I feel sometimes a shiver in my body, the sense of the quality in that. Just no messing around. And it's said that on that night he faced immense challenges, but he stayed there. Until with the dawn, awakening, enlightenment dawned within him. That doesn't mean you have to nail yourself to your cushion. Because it's not about a physical location in terms of, I'll stay here. It's like that sense of commitment and wholehearted, unwavering dedication to the direction and the path of one's life. And the commitment we're asked to make that we might be inspired by the Buddha with regard to, is the sense of the turning to face life directly rather than turning away from it. Not shying away, not shrinking away but yeah I want to turn and face this life and I want not going to move away from that the next to the paramis is Panya wisdom to see things as they are to understand the way life is arises from this quality of being present that we've been cultivating to see how things actually are rather than as we've imagined or believed them to be and the character of wisdom the character or the feature of understanding is that when we act on that understanding it leads to the reduction the resolution and ultimately the ending of suffering this is the character of wisdom of true understanding of seeing what is true then when we act in accordance with it, suffering resolves, dissolves, and ultimately comes to an end. And so it's important. That's why we talk about this as a wisdom tradition. Wisdom being that which dissolves suffering. And in this we see the, the nature of experience, the changing phenomena, the way in which experience doesn't give us lasting satisfaction the way in which we can't locate any abiding or permanent sense of identifiable self within the process or apart from it. And that this this journey in exploring and seeing it, we see that there's a a way in which we experience or imagine and conceive ourselves as separate from the totality of existence, as if we might imagine a wave was separate from the ocean on which it rolled and flowed, and yet it's not as we start to see this more truly and deeply, that the sense of separate existence, it's like being a block of ice floating in water, and yet at the same time is floating in it, melting into it. And the water and the ice are not different. They're not actually separate things. Just one is in a form of fixity and solidity, and the other is in a state of fluidity. And the, the journey of practice is really the journey of the dissolution of that solidity, To discover the essential fluidity of life which we participate in, undivided from any other part of it. And this is what wisdom points to, speaks to, and the development of wisdom, Panya, leads us to. And in that deepening of wisdom, the the unmediated contact with, discovery of, the realization that these teachings point to of the nature of life, of the Dharma, of the way things are, that is liberating, this is the, the development of wisdom. And the last of the parami that I wish to speak about is metta, which we've been cultivating, loving kindness, friendliness, warmth. I've been going for quite a while just now, so I'm aware that if your body's a little uncomfortable, just please know it's fine to change your posture. And you can do it with a sense of kindliness towards one's body. And uh, don't give too much weight to that bit about not having to move from earlier on. In this point, I'd rather you were at ease and able to stay with just a little bit more. This quality of kindness, of friendliness, of caring for each other, caring for ourselves, which as we cultivate and development, we see it starts to, the, the boundariness, the separateness, the way in which we hold ourselves apart from others, and we how we categorize these as those who I'm interested in caring for and those I'm not really, we see that that's somewhat kind of artificial and constructed and it starts to fall away, it starts to dissolve as we practice. That this quality of loving-kindness, of friendliness, of metta that we develop, it has as its essential character, together with the sense of caring, it doesn't see anything as other. It doesn't see separation or division or distinction it simply sees that which it sees is not different than that which it is that's the nature of seeing from that place and that the natural caring the the expression of the deeper truth of life that has at its very core this kindness and friendliness we see that it becomes limited or constrained by the way in which we divide and separate Ourself from others or even parts of ourself from ourself and when we don't do that when we don't see or relate in that way anymore then, in fact there's a wholeness and a holiness in that in fact where the kindness and the care is unbounded and un, it's not held back it's not like something we have to do it's what naturally flows out of the being when we start to see through the illusion of separation, through the illusion of apartness. And in this, what we can find as its deepest expression is the sense of the wishing for the well-being of all, quite naturally, that we wish for the well-being of all because we see that we are not separate nor apart from all beings and that the the sense of the aspiration of our practice which I touched on at the beginning, that sense of practicing not just for our well-being or our liberation but for the liberation of all beings, that this starts to carry and guide the journey of our lives the journey of our practice and this is the, the fullness of the fruition of Of loving kindness, which includes within it that sense of caring and compassion for all beings. So, I'd like to just finish with a piece from Shantideva. I think I might have mentioned or quoted earlier, in the retreat, and this is really his own dedication of his life and how he expresses that aspiration for his practice and his life. And I find it inspiring and beautiful. In that sense of wishing for the welfare of all being and to, ser- and to serve all beings. He says, may I be a guard for those who are without protection, a guide for those who journey on the road, For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an island for those who yearn for landfall, and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed. For all who need a helper, may I be a servant. May I be the wish-fulfilling jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power, and the supreme remedy. May I be the tree of miracles, and for every being, the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures, for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. Thus, for every single thing that lives, vast in number like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they, bar- until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. And so long as any living beings endure, may I too remain and help relieve their suffering. So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. May we all, in our practice and through our lives, deepen in the beautiful qualities of heart and mind, the parami and the practice that leads onwards, to freedom, to peace, to the boundless care and kindness for all. For our own liberation, for the liberation of all beings.